The Cannabis Conversation. A European perspective on the emerging legal cannabis industry. Welcome to the Cannabis Conversation with Anoush Desai, where we explore the new legal cannabis industry by speaking to the professionals that are helping to shape it. This show is sponsored by our great friends at Lumino. Lumino are a boutique HR and recruitment agency for the European cannabis industry. We've got a great show this week with the guys from Project 2021 in the UK who are busy gathering real-world evidence from patients. Lumino have helped build several clinic teams, placing clinic managers and specialist doctors amongst others, and have got a great and growing roster of candidates in these areas. If you need help with HR recruitment in this space, please do get in touch with them at luminorecruit.com. I'm really looking forward to this week's episode, but also next week's episode, which will be our 150th. I've got the legend, Professor Raphael Mishulam, joining me again. Obviously, it's a real honour. I can't quite believe this show has been going for three years, but I'm still enjoying it. And judging by the numbers, a few of you still are too, so that's encouraging. But anyway, as mentioned, we've got a great show coming up. Enjoy. On today's show, I have Dr. Anne Katrin Schlag and Mags Houston. They're both from Drug Science, which is an independent science-led drugs charity. Anne is head of research at Drug Science and Mags heads up Project 2021, which we're here to talk about. Hey guys, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Very well, thank you. Good. So we previously had the Davids on when Project 2020, do they go by that title? I'd like to think so. I often, yeah, it does help with emails. You can just go with plural Davids. It's quite good. I do wonder sometimes when when one of them or both of them are getting interviewed, whether the interviewer actually knows who is who sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I think one went by Dave last time, if I remember correctly, but to make it easier for us. Yeah, so we, we had the Davids on when... 2021 was launched a while ago now and obviously that's things have been progressing so it'd be great to get a catch up on where you guys are all at the usual place that we begin obviously is talking a bit about you on a personal level mags do you want to kick off maybe and just sort of tell us a bit about your background and what you were doing before and how and why you kind of got into this space Yes, of course. I'd love to. I've been with Drug Science for just over a year. I joined in October 2020. What a year last year was. Really, for me, a year of huge transformation. I decided to leave my career in advertising after over a decade and working on some really awesome brands. But I just got to a point with it where I realised it wasn't actually fulfilling my my needs from kind of that, that purpose-filled point of view. And drug policy and drug science, specifically the charity, are uh, it's a topic and drug science is an organisation that I um, have been passionate about for quite a few years now. For me, the journey really started with looking at alternative options to treat my, my friend, a close friend of mine who suffers with her mental health. And I thought there must be there must be medicines out there which can provide hope to people that current prescription drugs and you know readily prescribed med- medications where they are failing. And I came across a lot of articles about psychedelic research by the likes of Imperial and Johns Hopkins. 
And I'm sure many of your listeners will already be all over that stuff. And obviously in the last few years, all of that research has, it's grown immensely and it's now become a really mainstream conversation where only a few years ago, it was all still very much an underground topic, very highly stigmatized. And I feel like we've done a lot over the last two to three years to, to quash that stigma, which is wonderful. So I really came through the psychedelic research doorway, uh, if you will, and became fascinated by the work of Professor David Nutt and drug science through that and started going to talks like we all do and really reading up about everything and become, become becoming fascinated by the, the work going on with psilocybin especially. And I watched the incredible documentary, which I believe now is being front and centered on, on Netflix, uh, Magic Medicine, talking about the early depression trials at Imperial. And I just thought, this is a world I want to be part of. And I made it my mission to be part of it and started uh, chatting to drug science and, uh, you know, seeing where I could get my foot in the door. And I say all this just because I think it's important to say I came from a completely different field to the world of science, to the world of drugs and medicine. I did a degree in music and I went on to work in advertising as an account services person. So my job was really to in, ensure that the client was happy at all times and the creative teams were doing what they were meant to be doing and, and keeping to brief and, and that we were delivering campaigns on time and to budget. That was my role in the advertising world. And I thought that I had learned all these skills that were only possible to be used within that bubble. And actually, I was wrong. Those are amazing transferable skills that can be used in any industry, really, as long as you've got the kind of the passion, and the interest going on behind it. So, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a message to your listeners. If anyone's thinking, oh, I couldn't possibly get into the world of psychedelics or medical cannabis cannabis well you can you probably can we're looking for all sorts of different skill sets so hopefully that's that's inspiring to one or two people that are listening fingers crossed oh a hundred percent max i absolutely love that on so many levels a major part of this show is about career change i mean similarly i came from the entertainment industry as a lawyer working in film and television so very, very different from anything that I'm learning in, in this area. And, you know, it's, I've always aspired by hearing stories of, of people coming from very different industries. Just before we kind of hear more from Anne on, on her side of the story, you know, given that you described that you came from something that was quite different, did you encounter any stigma? I mean, one of the things I'm acutely aware of increasingly is that I live in a bit of a bubble because I sort of work in and surrounded by people in cannabis and some psychedelics as well all the time so we're pretty well versed in a lot of stuff but I'm always quite surprised at how little people outside this small bubble know so similarly how did you encounter that with some of your former colleagues or even your family did they you know did you have any kind of funny looks (laughs) it's a really good question I would say the the biggest pushback was probably my family because I had, you know, worked so hard to get this career in advertising and work my way up to be in, you know, to work in certain agencies and on certain brands. And I think an easy thing to understand from their perspective, because that was an industry that's been in existence for decades. Whereas here I was wanting to move into something that was the unknown. And, you know, it can be quite scary, the unknown. But as I have shown them the, the research and they've attended webinars that I've hosted, both with drug science and through my work with the Psychedelic Society, which I, just, I do sometimes freelance in my own time, um, 
they have come round to understanding that actually this is evidence-based what we're talking about this is science and the work being done in this field now is really I think pointing towards a huge shift in the way that we could be approaching our mental health system and healthcare systems and it could really change the face of how we prescribe for mental health the disorders and conditions in the future so I feel like I have um, for the most part won them over which is great news and in terms of family and and peers really not as much backlash as you would think especially living in London which in itself is definitely a bubble maybe if I lived uh, further away in the the countryside I'd come up up against a bit more of that old school stigma who knows (laughs) well that is a beautiful segue to Anne actually who has very recently not very recently but recently moved to the countryside so maybe we can get your view on that and what do you think in terms of stigma, well, I haven't spoken too much about, you know, people, uh, about these uh, things with people here because we've just met. But a couple of people I have spoken to, including, for example, my parents-in-law, you know, everybody's now asking me for advice in terms of medical cannabis, CBD, especially the older generation. And so can we ask our doctor, can the GP prescribe it? And so it's actually absolutely fascinating. I've sent them some links, some of our publication. They have read about it in various general news outlets and so on. So certainly in terms of cannabis, quite off-minded. I mean, I, I think it has definitely shifted. And this is medical cannabis, obviously. I'm not sure if they have the same opinion in terms of recreational uses, but medical cannabis, that's, I think, on the radar of the general population, different population groups, those different um, ages as well. So quite interesting. And here in the middle of the countryside. Actually, I'm invited to visit, uh, weirdly enough, I met somebody, a hemp farmer around the corner in, in Taunton in Somerset. But as they said, no, as soon as the season starts in April, you must come and visit and so on. So, you know, it's it's all around, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's good to hear. Brilliant. Cool. Thank you. And so, Anne, maybe you can just also tell us a bit about your background, too. Yes, so my background is psychology, research psychology, um, purely academic, um, less clinical. I was at King's College London before for quite a few years, where I did research, kind of associated with drugs and in a, in a weird way, and the novel Food and Processes Act and so on. But it was very much food related. And in terms of what drugs or what other substances are added to our foods and the labeling and all this go, that goes with it. And really, and interestingly enough, that has come in extremely handy, my background knowledge about that, um, in terms of CBD and CBD regulation, especially, which obviously, as you might know, are rather complex here in this country. So, yeah, and then, but my interest has always been drugs and altered states of consciousness. And when the opportunity arose to work for David Nutt, uh, first on a smaller project in multi-criteria decision analysis together with Professor Larry Phillips from the LSE. So I took this opportunity and more and more developed from there, really, which went hand in hand with my children getting just this little bit older and being able to attend school so that I could actually get more into work. I've been working, I think, with David since 2015, 2016, yeah, 2015. So quite a long time and lots of it part-time, but now since a year or two full-time and, yeah, especially the medical cannabis work since I think 2018 we did since then we did loads of medical cannabis work 
Professor Emma recently did psychedelic work as well, but various other work aspects relate to drug policy, drug regulation, international comparisons, and so on. So taking a very broad perspective, not just drugs per se, but really the broader context as well, drugs and society, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, a key kind of part of the show is about education, and that's the very core of what you guys do. So maybe do you want to kind of explain, you know, we'll, we'll deeper dive into Project 2021 and, and the subjects of cannabis, but maybe you can describe, you know, on a broad perspective what drug science does, because you, you must encounter a number of, how do you describe it, narcotics or, or currently scheduled as narcotics? Not necessarily. No, drug science, we also deal, so to say, with alcohol and tobacco. Absolutely. Okay. It does not okay. have to be <laughs> does not have to be illegal for us to deal with it, not at all. Sure. As you will know, alcohol is one of the substances which exhibits the most damage to society here in the UK as well as other Western societies. So no, absolutely, that is very much one of our areas. You know, anything you know, and that often relates to harm reduction then. We're slightly less related maybe to policy and changing scheduling and so on. But harm reduction, there's plenty that can be done and that should still be done in order to to reduce harm to users as well as to society in general. And what are some of the things that you guys do then in relation to this? So lots of different aspects, really. So one absolutely is the research which I'm heading, and that's obviously key to really collect scientific evidence. So anything that we do is based on scientific evidence and scientific evidence alone. So we're not really swayed by whether public opinion, political opinion or industry opinions. So the scientific evidence is key. And in some relation, as you will know, you know, scientific evidence shows up a drug such as harmful, such as alcohol, to be rather harmful or rather more harmful that people often perceive it or that is presented in politics and society. And there are other aspects, I mean, cannabis and psychedelics do come in mind, scheduled as a very harmful drug. But in reality, if we look at the scientific evidence from the UK as well as internationally, these aren't actually particularly harmful drugs. People don't generally die from that. You know, so that's one of our aspects and the research itself. We have uh, our own journal, Drug Science Policy and Law, which has just been relaunched. I'm one of the editors together with Professor David Nutt, of course. So very much uh, as the title suggests, research can be drug science, policy and law. So very broad perspective. And that's really the aim of the charity itself as well. We obviously work very closely together with, for example, universities, Imperial College London, King's College London, and so on. So we're working very hand in hand with the scientists developing certain research there on cannabis, on psychedelics, and so on. We work closely together also with other drug policy groups, such as Transform and Release, in terms of getting the you know, policy right. And then specifically in terms of medical cannabis, we work closely together with the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society and the Primary Care Cannabis Network as well. So as well as various patient um, charities, PLEA, patient-led 
access, equal access, <laughs> and meds can, for example, and our pain who are addressing specifically medical cannabis access for pediatric epilepsy patients. So that's the research thing. And then the education, we develop educational materials which are freely available on our webpage um, about various drugs, but also about various harm reduction strategies. And then we've taken a deep dive with really having full slide sets available for university educations and other users on medical cannabis specifically to educate, for example, doctors and GPs and healthcare professionals on medical cannabis specifically. We're very much hoping to enlarge this repertoire and really have these slides also accepted as modules for university educations and for degrees. These are just two of the things. And then within this, just moving to the uh, to Project 2021 as well. That's obviously one of our key works and key projects, which Max, I'm sure, will speak a bit more about afterwards. So which became... Well, which is one of the results of our medical cannabis working group, which was launched in early 2019, really, to address the impasse that has been or still continuing, unfortunately, in this country after the legalization of medical cannabis in November 2018, that patients still are unable to access medical cannabis through the NHS. So we started a medical cannabis working group on this. And from that, we have loads of research, mostly open access, because we really value the transparency, accessibility and open access of research that we are doing and to are keen to share it widely. So that's one of the things. But we also launched last year the Medical Psychedelics Working Group and the Enhanced Harm Reduction Facilities Working Group. And details for, both, for all of these working groups can be found on our webpage. Wow. So you don't have much on your plate then. <laughs> that is impressive. That's a huge wide remit. And you're working with some great organizations that you listed out there, some of whom I've had on the show. So that's great. And I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think education is obviously very key to unlocking this. And I remember talking to Professor Nutton the, the last time that they were on, and he kind of really sort of said that the key, I mean, there's lots of keys, but a very, very big one is is doctor education. If you can get the medical fraternity to start being open to this being a kind of something, having therapeutic uses rather than it being something damaging, that's kind of a really big obstacle that we sort of need to get around. Yeah, I'd love to actually just build on that point, Anish, because um, one of the ways in which we make sure we're providing education is through events, both in person and online. I think historically they've really be in person but of course over the last year and a half that's all changed and we've had some really great webinars over the last year and a half and on the your point around educating doctors last year we actually brought into effect bi-monthly medical cannabis training which is run by our chief medical officer professor mike barnes and that is a really low cost in fact it's only like a 99 pound donation for doctors to do like a three or four hour live zoom training session with mike himself in a group so that you're you're meeting other clinicians and you've got a chance to do a little q a at the end i think mike there's a bit of a quiz and it's all cpd accredited so that's just one way in which we're making sure that we're providing education to doctors 
Also next month, um, I'm going to give a little plug to an event that I'm running for GPs to raise awareness um, around medical cannabis. The conversation with GPs is a bit more of a complicated one. The situation currently is if a GP wants to prescribe medical cannabis, it has to be part of a shared care arrangement. So what that means is the GP cannot initiate the prescription. They need to ensure that a patient has been started off in their prescription with a specialist consultant. So that might be a pain specialist. It might be a psychiatrist, maybe a neurologist, depending on what their condition is. And then once that patient is stable on their medication, then the GP is able to take them or take that patient off the consultant's hands and continue with the follow-up appointments from that point. But they're not able to initiate prescription. So actually, one of the things that Professor David Nutt wanted to uh, recommend back in February in his letter to the ACMD was that GPs should be allowed to initiate those prescriptions because that will really enable better access to medical cannabis for patients in the UK. It will ensure that more people can get hold of this really valuable medicine. So the event next month for GPs is not only going to raise awareness about the current state of affairs around like the current le- like legal situation, but also we want to tell GPs how they can get involved at this point in time. And hopefully in the next year, we might see things change. There was a debate in Parliament last Friday around a bill that Labour MP Jeff Smith put forward. And part of that was advocating GP prescribing. So that's now been put to vote in January and we've all got our fingers crossed that it might come to something. So let's wait and see. Yes. Yeah. I and mean, sadly, it was a bit disappointing. I think people were hoping for a bit more action coming out of that specific reading, but hopefully that can be addressed in January when that comes out. And that sounds like a fantastic event. So I'd be more than happy to push that out on my channels when you send me the details. So yeah, glad that you're, you're doing all that stuff. So, okay, let's drill down on 2021 then. Max, maybe you can do this one. Would you mind just recapping on what it's about and what Mm. stage you're at now? Yes, of course. Project 2021 was launched in November 2019. So officially we've been going for two years, but there were a few months at the start where we needed to work a few things out. And we started really taking on patients in larger numbers from summer 2020. So now we've just reached our 2000 patient milestone, which is amazing to have reached. We're really, really proud of that. And it's been a real journey. So we have been taking on patients that fall into seven or eight different conditions. Up until September, it was seven. So the key ones being chronic pain and and anxiety. That's what we see most patients for. And in September, we started taking on ADHD patients as well. But actually, we are going to change it again over the next few weeks, but all for the better, because what we're doing is we're going to open up the project to enable anyone who suffers with a condition that can be treated with medical cannabis at one of our registered clinics to enter the study. So it means that we're not just confining it to those eight conditions anymore, which is great. So that's the kind of the first part of the eligibility criteria that they need to have a diagnosis of a condition that can be treated with medical cannabis. So the second key benefit, and actually the one that I want to really ensure that people understand now in the coming year as we move forward with the project, is that the whole point of gathering all of this data from patients every three months is so that we can build a big body of evidence that medical cannabis treatments work for a whole range of conditions. And what we hope that that will enable us to do is give patients access to medical cannabis treatment through the NHS. 
Now, even though, as Anna said, the NHS are meant to be prescribing medical cannabis and it's legal, it's been legal for three years for many different reasons that just hasn't happened. And the legislation is not there at the moment to make doctors feel safe about prescribing. They don't feel like they've had the education around medical cannabis to be able to prescribe. And then when they try and um, give prescriptions, it's not, it gets blocked by the process that's in place in order to kind of get that patient prescribed. So at the moment, patients are still having to go through the private sector. And that's what we want to change with Project 2021 ultimately. Yes, fantastic. Because I was just about to ask you what the purpose of it overall was, but you've explained that very well there. Uh, just before we move on to Anne for maybe to kind of talk about some of the findings, Mags, on a practical level, how are you actually locating and recruiting participants in this project? Mm, it's a great question. We have lots of different ways in which we recruit patients. One thing that we've done is we did some case study videos last year so that we can show people like the actual like face-to-face stories that we're hearing from patients. Another thing that we did was we went to Product Earth, the, the Cannabis and Hemp Festival held in, I think it's Kenilworth, isn't it? back in August. And that was our drug science festival debut. And we met with hundreds of people there and we were able to talk to them about the project and give them posters and leaflets and badges to take away with them, which was really, really great exposure for us and something that we look forward to doing more of next year. In September, we ran a student campaign where we sent loads of materials off to student societies for them to to hand out at their freshers' fairs and to help raise awareness about medical cannabis and specifically about Project 2021 there. And apart from all that, we are always looking to partner with different charities so that we can tap into the specific conditions that medical cannabis is being seen to help. So, for example... Back in May, we did a collaboration event with the British Pain Society where we spoke to pain specialists in a medical context, a medical event, so not open to patients. And we were able to speak to pain specialists about the work that we're doing and the findings that we're getting through Project 2021. But equally on a patient side, we're always looking for for opportunities where we can be speaking at events first outside of the cannabis bubble, because it can be very easy to speak within our own industry about all the the great work that we're doing and everyone's you know cheering each other on but actually we need to be pushing outside of that space and speaking in a more kind of wellness more health broader health environment so that we can get the messages to people who don't necessarily know about them yet yeah absolutely it's a crucial importance isn't it to reach out to wider than that circle and do you want to maybe talk a bit about some of the findings i mean that could be a whole show on its own so maybe if you could just highlight some of the kind of interesting findings and maybe things that you found surprising from some of the data that you've been collecting. Yeah, sure. And Max, do correct me if I <laughs> if I get something wrong. I think we're up to 2,000 patients now, which is amazing. And it's really quite an achievement. And it's amazing to develop the UK evidence base, which is what regulators and policymakers here in the UK would like to see. But I think what, what is really encouraging and not surprising, really, it's lots of the findings so far actually replicate and mirror the findings of other international databases. The big databases already exist from Health Canada, the Minnesota database, the German Bee Farm has 
over 5,000 patients now. So there's a lot out there already. And our findings so far are extremely similar. So just to start off with, we have patients from 18 to, I think, 19 now. So huge age range, I mean, which is incredible. So the young person looking for a, a recreational use or anything, these are, you know, like I said, my parents-in-law are interested in it too. So they, I find this fascinating. In terms of primary conditions treated, pain is the top condition that people here in the UK are looking to treat with medical cannabis, which is very interesting in the sense that it is not on the recommendations from NICE in terms of prescribing uh, medical cannabis for but people are still looking for that and are finding it very effective as well which is very similar to other countries in terms of pain chronic pain we take quite a broad perspective incorporating for example also um, Crohn's disease and so on and kind of if you wanted to look at the you know second most often treated conditions these could fall under the psychiatric conditions these are anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorders, and so on. So again, similar to other databases. And again, interesting because the kind of other randomized control evidence, trial evidence, is not particularly strong for some of these conditions. So it's just interesting that patients are actively choosing to treat these conditions with the various medical cannabis products. So that's very interesting. And then obviously we have Tourette's and adult epilepsy as well in terms of the condition, which are thankfully only very small conditions. But I think one thing I did want to highlight as well, which is yeah coming out a lot here in the UK as well as in other countries, that patients tend to have quite a lot of comorbidities. So they don't just have pain or just have anxiety, but a lot of these conditions tend to go together. Most patients have two or three other comorbid conditions. And I think we had up to 10 you know, co- or even more comorbid conditions where patients are really very ill and suffering very much. Sorry, Anne, is my understanding correct that if you are, if you do have comorbidity symptoms, i.e. a couple of different conditions, you wouldn't be able to participate in a kind of clinical trial? Yeah, that's generally the case, exactly, because it is very complex. I mean, human beings are complex. <laughs> it's not, it's a kind of predictable, really. But of course, for randomized controlled trials, ideally, the trial, the leaders of these particular trials are looking to treat one particular condition with one particular product and then compare it to the placebo and so on. And that's obviously in uh, one issue here is, of course, as we see that a lot of these patients do not just have one condition, especially for example, pain patients, you know, they also have anxiety, depression, often a lot of insomnia, loads of other comorbidities. And the other issue in terms of, as you asked for about randomized controlled trials, obviously, is that cannabis is not a broad spectrum cannabis, at least it's not just one product, you know, it has a lot of different compounds, it's extremely difficult to put in a randomized controlled trials or to really make sure that, you know, we have all different ratios of all the different compounds. And I'm not just meaning it THC and CBD, but all the different terpenes, for example, as well. So, you know, that's why a lot of patients are preferring very much here in the UK as well as otherwise a full spectrum or broad spectrum product, which is not really available on the NHS by and large as well. Yeah, that's great. And it's a really good topic, actually, something we frequently talk about on the show. But, you know, what are some of the challenges of the other challenges, I guess, of real world evidence versus clinical trials? And how are you kind of seeking to overcome them? Because I guess it's 
there's an inherent kind of issues in in how they're kind of constituted but equally there's reputational kind of impact on how doctors and authorities sort of view the two different sets of data yeah absolutely so i start max and if you have anything to add then please do but as most of your listeners will know rcts randomized control trials obviously have been the gold standard in medicine since uh, last century, 50s and 60s after, you know, 60s at least after various scandals in medicines. And, you know, they rightly have a place in terms of being a controlled trials and in terms of really being able to establish causation of the effect of the particular drugs or substance and so on. So absolutely, you know, very helpful in this regard. They are obviously limited, as we've just discussed, in relation to medical cannabis, unless one wants to use and test and isolate, which, for example, GW Pharma have done with Epidiolex. But of course, that's not necessarily the most helpful product. And medical cannabis is not just one product. So it would be very much challenging to really be able to test all the different compounds and the different ratios of these compounds for the different indications that medical cannabis is helpful for for patients already. So that's one of the key points. So RCTs are limited in that regard that they can't really show us that. Obviously, they are very time consuming, extremely costly for companies as well. So it's not a straightforward thing for them to do. Hence, for one of the reasons that they have usually very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria of patients in terms of comorbidities and, you know, various mental health conditions, for example, that they prohibit in having a medical cannabis trial um, participants in that regard. So this is really where real-world evidence is coming in and especially useful. I mean, we have seen loads of real-world evidence and literally life-developing evidence now in relation to COVID. This is all real-world evidence. A lot of the research hasn't gone through clinical trials. We don't have the time or the resources to do that at this moment. So this is real-world evidence, what is being collected, what is being presented in the newspaper, and successfully so, and rightly so. You know, and in relation to medical cannabis, as I mentioned before, there are large-scale databases all over the world accumulating of hundreds of thousands of patients by now and showing really a pattern of evidence. I just mentioned, for example, pain tends to be treated most often with medical cannabis globally. And we can also look what types of medical cannabis products are used for that. Is it just CBD or THC or combination of both and so on? So we can really start with doing these things. And real-world evidence is also, as I mentioned, extremely helpful if patients do have comorbidities, which would exclude them from RCTs, but which we can account for within, say, T21 or other databases, because, of course, the doctors can make notes of it and they can also follow this up longitudinal. And this is actually another really important um, point in terms of real-world evidence, what T21 is doing, for example. This is longitudinal data. It's not just three months. It's not just an occasional time is three months, it's six months, it's one year, it's one and a half years to really follow up and the conditions of the patient, which is absolutely vital in relation to medical cannabis to see does the tolerance develop to what extent are there actually other harms that we may not have addressed or not have seen that wouldn't really be seen in terms of randomized controlled trials. Likewise, in terms of benefits. You know, you're testing in an RCTs, you would test for a particular condition, but often you don't take the 
broader perspective into account, the broader functioning. And what we found in T21, which I forgot to mention earlier, was really the improvements of quality of life of the, these patients. You know, these quality of life improvements were so significant, absolutely incredible. And this was associated together with better sleep, better digestion, ability to return to work, not being bedridden. You know, obviously then also taking a much broader perspective, having a social and economic benefit, really, if patients can get off benefits and can enter the workforce again, can look after their children again. And, you know, this kind of broader perspective is a real life, basically. And, you know, this is this real world evidence is really is much more about real life and how the product is really used and how patients are really dealing with it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, real life is the thing that really kind of kind of jumps out. And I, I get the RCTs in terms of pure objectivity, but it doesn't seem very representative of what goes on in real life, particularly if you're, you know, if you're past a, a certain age and that could be relatively young still, and people have two or three problems going on, right? And it's it feels a bit weird that in order to be tested upon, you're not very representative of the world at large. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and one thing I should really also add in relation to cannabis, cannabis is not a new drug. Cannabis has been around for millennium. There aren't really any deaths from cannabis. They, I'm not saying there are no harms at all, depending on the product and how it's used and so on. Of course, every drug and every substance has its risks and so on, but it has been used in millennia in various cultures and so on. It has been used by Queen Victoria, apparently, for period pain and loads of examples, positive examples. So we can, I think, safely get on with doing the real-world evidence based development, you know, looking at patients in real life. If it was a completely new compound, maybe that's something completely different as well. But we really have to look at the history of cannabis and the history of medical uses of cannabis, which is really quite extraordinary. You know, it's not just the UK. The, The thing that really got my attention with regards to this RCTs, coming at this from a non-scientific perspective and trying to understand the differences between these different types of trials was really when I got to know the work that Anna is doing along with uh, Ryan Zafar, our honorary research assistant, with the families of 21 children with severe forms of epilepsy, where they are doing real-world evidence to look at how medical cannabis might help them. Now, if they were going to be an RCT, then there would need to be a placebo group within that trial. So that what that would mean is a cohort of those children, those patients, would actually get no medication. They wouldn't be getting the medical cannabis. And if you can imagine being their parents, you're not going to want to put your child into a trial where they might be given a placebo and might go back up to 30, 40 seizures a day, having been seizure free for over a year, which is the kind of evidence that we are seeing. It's it's absolutely amazing. So that to me was the most obvious indication that we need to start looking outside of RCTs for this evidence and that actually the data that we're getting from studies like Project 2021 needs to be taken seriously by policymakers. Absolutely and actually as we kind of get towards the end of the show that segues very nicely into some of the other groups that you're sort of dealing with you mentioned I mean there are lots of different sort of stakeholder groups and you've mentioned doctors and patients obviously so far how are you as an organization and in particular the project kind of facing into regulators and and drug policy makers and with the things that you're doing and the results that you're seeing 
So in terms of the partners that we work with, just to explain, I suppose, where how Project 2021 works with our partners, we have partnered with five different cannabis producers. And this happened back back two years ago when the project was, was launched. And they provided the funding in order to allow the prescriptions to be subsidised and to allow us to run the projects and collect the data on their on their products. So they're getting their data from us in exchange for the subsidies to patients, if that makes sense. So that's how it allows us to run. That doesn't really answer your question, does it? I mean, in my mind, it would be fantastic if you were sharing the data that you were getting and policymakers were sort of going, mm. oh, wow, maybe we were a bit wrong. <laughs> yes, maybe we need to exactly. this, this is the idea. This is an idea scenario that would happen. We present the scientific evidence, you know, we all we understand science, these are the facts, we work to it. This is evidence-based. It's not just something we collect. And even, you know, the Max just mentioned, for example, the audits, the kind of um, responses that we collected for the pediatric epilepsy patients. This is all done to the highest scientific standards, has gone through ethical approval. It's not just something we, we hear, you know, it's not market research or anything. So, and I would like to highlight that and I, hopefully you can share this as well. I know share that we should have a BMJ publication on exactly this topic coming out. So it's gone through peer review and peer review. It's really high level and best quality, you know, best quality. And in terms of, yeah, and we're very much hoping that such a publication will actually have a bit of an impact, at least making doctors or regulators, policymakers, and so on think twice in terms of saying, actually, wow, this is published, this is peer reviewed, there must be something to it, you know? So very much hoping that this yeah this can move it forward slowly and we're talking obviously about the kind of peer-reviewed papers here now which is my, one of my jobs but more powerful at least as powerful are these patient testimonies you know patients of t21 of course of the various conditions but then we have hannah deacon or matt hughes of medcan and so on and telling the stories of their children which by the way we also published in a peer-reviewed journal as a kind of qualitative study, you know, what these people have been going through and just, again, putting things into context, into kind of a social context of their lives, really. And we're really hoping that things, you know, that little by little, I mean, unfortunately, it's extremely slow, this process, and we would hope it's faster, but we've seen this with medical cannabis as well as any other substances and so on that is not as straightforward as saying here's the evidence to use it now and do it you know it's not yeah. um, and in february anna will actually be one of the people presenting the evidence that we have collated so far at an event we're holding at the house of lords and that will be for mps and charities so that's just one way in which we're trying to actually get in front of them and say look here's the evidence, here's the work that we're doing. And we're going to be bringing uh, with us families from Endar Pain and MedCan Support to be talking about their experiences firsthand with those MPs. Hopefully a few doctors will come along as well. So fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's important and what we're also always doing in terms of the scientific findings, not everybody has time to read the scientific article. We really make an effort to put it as a shorter, very much shorter and very accessible version on the drug science webpage to publish this more widely, to share it, and to, you know, to put a bit of a shorter version, especially to, say, politicians who are bombarded with so many suggestions. We're trying to make it easy for them to look into it. And I know I should really say, uh, you know, many of us might not have the best opinion of politicians, especially at the moment, but we do work together with an incredible bunch of MPs all across the political spectrum 
were extremely supportive and really put their neck out to, to speak and to bring up bills and to, we were working very closely together with them and, you know, advising them and so on. Yes, yes, there are some good ones out there, aren't there? <laughs> yes. Well, I, guys, I'm really sorry, but, you know, we've kind of come towards the end and, and there's so many more questions I could ask. It's such a fascinating project that you're working on and, and really vital for the kind of expansion of, of everyone's understanding and hopefully the treatment of some patients who are very much in need. So I commend you guys for your, all your efforts and I really hope that it continues to sort of gather great data and that we can all share and see medical cannabis come to the fore more. So thank you for joining me today. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. It will help me spread the good word on how this amazing industry is developing. I work with various cannabis startups to help them get funded and grow. I also work with corporates and international cannabis companies to help them understand and navigate the European cannabis sector. We're working with some great clients across the cannabis value chain and we'd love to help you too. Please visit www.canverse.global to get in touch.